Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Amos 8, 1 through 2, and 9, 9 through 10. This is the word of God. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Now moving to Amos 9, 9 through 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nation as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Remain standing as we pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We can't thank you enough for that, for such clear guidance. We thank you for principles that stand the test of time. Thank you for a God that does not change, doesn't waver. Thank you that you give us an opportunity to continue to learn, many times just relearn what we've heard before and need to make more real in our lives. And we pray by your spirit that that would happen this very hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. J.J., I know you normally have to move around and uh, adjust things, but they've got me trapped. You know, I think they even even put the cords here so I couldn't move, so I think I'm going to have to stay still. But let's jump into God's God's Word. You know, this this passage, as we finish up, is really two chapters. That's quite a chunk to have to get through in, in a final session. So I've chosen two images, two word pictures that God puts right in the Scriptures And I want to make those really our emphasis today. They're God's word pictures. They capture his his thrust as he preaches through Amos in these final chapters. And I think they help to reinforce the content of this book. So, So when you're thinking of these two word pictures, I want you to first of all picture that right here in front of us, we've got a basket of of just freshly picked end of summer season fruit. And then next to that basket, as if we had torn off the little handle of it and we had replaced the bottom of that wicker basket with a screen and we made ourselves, like a farmer in ages past would have, a sieve, something that separates. Those are going to be our two guiding images today as we explore these last two chapters of Amos. So let's begin with a basket of summer fruit. We just heard the passage read from Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where it says, The Lord showed me a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. There's two different ways, at least, that this drives home, this image drives home the end. 
Well, one is just practically speaking, they knew in that in their summer season that this signified when you had the ripe fruit that was only harvested towards the end of the season. They knew that the end of a season was upon them. So God can say the end has come. There's also a little Hebrew wordplay because the word in Hebrew for summer fruit and the word for end almost sound exactly alike. So in two different ways that original audience would hear with the image of summer fruit, they would hear the thought, the end has come. One has said it this way, the long summer of God's patience has finally come to an end and there has been no harvest of repentance. And so what unfolds? Well, verse 3 of chapter 8 tells us, The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. It's an image of of these temples that that the northern kingdom, the Israelites of the northern kingdom, had, had built temples where God was not honored. There's literally man-made idols in in these temples, priests that did not honor God, did not represent God, and and, and songs that did not minister to God's heart. He, He did not welcome the noise that came from these temples. And he says that noise is going to be replaced by wailings when judgment comes. Beyond that, these places of, of, in this affluent culture, these places of parties, of, of, of just revelry, are going to be replaced with a scene that just looks like a graveyard. So many dead bodies. In your Bible, it might have it in quotes, as if somebody is surveying where it used to be times of, of great celebration and fun. Now is a place where someone looks around and says, so many dead bodies. And someone else looks around Every place that they look, the dead bodies are everywhere. It's like a graveyard in which no shovel has been roused yet. And then finally in this verse, silence. It's not silence in the sense of, well, it's silent right now. It's an imperative. It's, it's, it's a command. As if one is standing next to a friend and you're the only ones left and you survey what's around. And you just say, hush. What's ahead was a day of coming gloom, chapter 3. Verse 3 reminds us. And the next few verses begin to call back a theme that has been coming repeatedly in this chapter, in in this book. It's a theme of judgment for the greedy oppression, the the trampling of the poor. And I don't know if there's an Old Testament book that, that better communicates God's concern for the poor. We've been visiting that for several weeks now. And this just is another opportunity for God to circle back. In one sense, God's like us. He keeps talking about what's most important to him. That's why Barrett talks about mountain bikes if you give him a little chance. We talk about what's important to us and God's concern for the poor and God's abhorrence at when they are oppressed by greed is, is just something that's recircled here. Well, he picks an example of selling grain in verses 4 to 6. 
I'm sure God could cite any number of ways in which we would see uh, that he is just observant of ways in which people were doing things that just disappointed him, doing things that dishonored him. So, so he comes up with just the business people, the merchants who are selling grain. And it's as if Amos is preaching, picture him maybe preaching on a Sabbath, or, or he's here preaching at church, and he looks out over them and on God's behalf says, some of you are just wishing the church would get over, aren't you? You want to get back to business, quite literally. Some of you on the monthly New Moon Festival, in which they would set aside time to celebrate a new month. And, and it was an understanding uh, that Nehemiah even pointed out as, that they were to use this as a day of, of rest, in some ways similar to a Sabbath. And he said, you're, you're, you're taking that day and you're just wishing it over. For the Sabbath, you know, that ends at sundown, you businessmen, you merchants, you're picturing the sun going down over the horizon and you just can't wait to see the sun go down because it's back to business. It's back to an opportunity to cheat and oppress the needy in order that you can gain more and lift your standard of living. How, does they, how do they do it? Well, they do it in a few different ways. After wishing away a time set apart for God, it says they make the ephah small in verse 4. And five. They make the ephah small. That was just a unit of measurement for grain. So picture a unit. A, a, it could be a, a box here. It could be just a sack that, that had a certain volume to it. And so God says, you make the ephah small. You line the outside or the inside of that box or that, or that sack so that the actual volume of grain is less than you're supposed to be selling. In addition to that, you make the shekel big. Well, the shekel was what? On a scale. I believe you could put that up there. A scale in which you put the shekel, that weight on one side, and those people would need to pay in silver on the other. So when you made the shekel, this unit of weight, and you weighted down the weight, it needed to have more silver on the other side. You've not only cheated them when it comes to how much grain you're selling them, you're cheating them in terms of how much silver you extract for that. And not only that, the end of verse 6, it says, basically, you sweep the floors and include the chaff, the, the trash that is, should not be part of selling the grain. You're not selling pure grain. You're throwing the chaff in there, stuff that's worthless. In three different ways, God says, I know how you cheat. I know your dishonesty. I know how you are oppressing those, particularly those who have less than you, have less recourse in society, and cheating them. And I'm not pleased with that. The time would come just about 30 or 40 years later, after Amos is saying these things, which indeed their destruction would come. In 1 Kings, you don't need to turn to it, but it's 1 Kings 17 that, that outlines what happens to them in 722 BC. After many rewarding, after many warnings, after a period in which no repentance, even up to the end, the Assyrian army is coming in, there's still no genuine repentance. Listen to what the Lord says and listen for his comments about warnings and lack of repentance. From 1 Kings chapter 17, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, 
saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been. Their fathers who didn't believe in the Lord their God, they despised God's statutes, His covenant that He made with their fathers, and the warnings that He gave them. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that their first king, Jeroboam, did. They did not depart from those sins until the Lord removed Israel out of His sight. He spoke through all these prophets and servants, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria. Do you hear his, God's repeated comments about how many warnings? I've spoken over and over again through my prophets, and you've not listened. I've spoken over and over again, you've not repented. Even when the Assyrian army, 30, 35 years later, is on the horizon, a lack of repentance. Well, back to the basket. How do we look at, I'm going to ask a specific question, I think, of application. It has to do with judgment. This is a chapter, this is a book about judgment. How do we look and regard the timing of God's judgment correctly? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Because I found a dilemma for myself. A dilemma about how God times His judgment. Not just a final judgment, but also judgment in the world today. Because perhaps like me, you're troubled that God has not toppled every dictator yet. You're troubled that he has not squashed every drug lord that is ruining the lives of young boys and communities. That he has not sent to jail every brothel Owner, every woman in Asia who is running a brothel that is destroying day by day the lives of young girls. You see, the timing of God's judgment is something that should, should well trouble us as we seek to discern and, and really bow ourselves to God's decisions on that. Because I look around, and I know you do as well, and see things you just said, God, can't you just make that right now? Have you ever thought, can't you just take that person out now who is doing so much evil? Can't you just remove that person from office, whether it's in Russia or in our own country, right now because of the lives lost? Well, I think that way back in Exodus, when God spoke to Moses, he gave us some insight we need to hold on to, even as we listen some hundreds of years later to Amos preaching. When, when God spoke to, to Moses and he passed by him, he said these words, The Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. When this God who is slow to anger, who says of himself, I am rich in mercy, and yet at the same time says, I will by no means clear the guilty, we see how this dilemma for us is set up. 
Because there's times it's hard for us to accept the timing of him dealing with the guilty. God's judgment is often delayed, but his judgment is delayed by his mercy, his desire for repentance. And that's a needed reminder because there's times I'm impatient with God's patience. Maybe that happens more when I think about the world and the things that I see on the news. But it happens a bit less often I grow impatient when maybe I sit down and I could make a list, a list of people I know, a list of people I'm even close to, who I hope the Lord doesn't come back today because they're not right with him yet. And I need to trust and bow my knee to, this, to my sovereign God as to his perfect timing whether it's judgment, whether it's, it's his punishment, whether it's him meeting out justice in the lives of figures in the world today, whether it's even meeting out justice in, in people who have wronged us. I need to trust his judgment as to when it will come, even for the end of the ages, because he desires for the nations to bow their knee to him, to, to have a whole harvest, his full harvest of those who will be with us in heaven. And, and as I think of God's judgment, I have this takeaway that he spoke to Ezekiel, this reminder that God's judgment gives him no pleasure. Ezekiel 33:11, I take no pleasure from the death of the wicked. I want the wicked to change their ways and live, he says through Ezekiel. I have to ask myself in this chapter that we, we consider God's judgment. We consider the fact that he says the end has come, and yet there's still another 30, 40 years. Not so bad if you're mid-40s. Don't expect to live it out. Heaven forbid you get to mid-50s, like ah, 30, 35 years from now. The good living will continue. This judgment that is about to hear, I'm going to escape this. And yet... I want to ask myself the question, do I really want to bow my knee to God's perfect timing on judgment? The ultimate judgment day as well as the events in my own life and the events of world events. And trust that a key factor in God's determination of when he meets out justice is his mercy and his desire for repentance. His desire that they would seek him and live. When is the last time that you have read of, of just someone that you just view as so, uh, shows such disregard for God's ways and said, Lord, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen, but I will pray for that person. If it is your will, they come to a saving knowledge of you. I do want to, like you, desire that they would change their ways and live. Judgment did come. We read about it really in the next chapter when it says in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon this sinful kingdom. And I'm going to destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. That's quite a judgment. 
And there's a variety of ways in which we see in this book as to how this judgment had, had, they had brought it on themselves. One of those key things was their trampling of the poor. Not just in our section here in chapter 8, but in other times before this. But I think another key way in which they had brought judgment on ourselves, one that I think has such relevance for today, is they had confused prosperity with God's blessing. You know, times were good. We've read about that these last few weeks. You can read the history books and find this was actually a pretty prosperous time in the northern kingdom. You wouldn't have gone around there and thought, everybody's got their head dang down, the economy stinks, you know, things, there's just lawlessness. No, you would have walked around and saw signs of real wealth. That those who had means hadn't just bought a little ivory for their 88-key piano. They had paneled their walls with ivory, a real sign of, of just indulgence. They didn't just have a winter house, but they had a summer house. There's comments in this book we've already studied about just the size of their homes. They, they, there was not enough. They could just find more ways to extort the poor to gain more. But in doing that, they had confused prosperity with God's blessing. Now, I've got to ask the question, is there a prosperity, a material prosperity that does come from the Lord? Do we need to go the other direction and say material prosperity has nothing to do with the Lord's blessing? Sometimes we, we uh, in speaking and, and cautioning very clearly against a prosperity gospel, a distortion of those scriptures that act like you just claim it and it's yours, that prosperity is a sign of God's blessing. We run the other direction. Yet I look back over the scriptures and I look at Abraham. What a rich man. But he was a rich man commended because he was willing to sacrifice even his own son, Isaac. I think of Job. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. I don't know, that sounds like a lot to me. He was a rich man, and yet in the throne room of heaven, when Satan visited in Job 1, he said, have you considered my servant Job, an upright and blameless man? Think of Lydia in the New Testament, a merchant in purple. Purple was a sign of just goods that, that were, there were clothing and textiles that only the rich could have. It was a prosperous business. And yet, God's servant Lydia, a rich woman, housed Paul and many of his other co-ministers for lengths of time in Philippi, and no doubt provided beyond her rich hospitality other ways, and she was commended for that. And what about Joseph of Arimathea? Is that a sign that God sometimes chooses to materially bless? He had promised in Isaiah that the Lord would be buried, the Messiah buried, in a rich man's tomb. He didn't tell us that that rich man would risk his reputation to go before Pilate and ask for the body. He didn't tell us that he would, along with his friend Nicodemus, go and take down the Lord Jesus from the cross. We celebrated the Lord's Supper here, reminding ourselves of the blood. I don't know if there's any man that ever had more of Jesus' blood on him than Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, who embalmed him and carried him nearby to his own tomb. There's prosperity 
In fact, it's even stated in Isaiah 45, I bring prosperity, the Lord says. Yet there is both a prosperity that comes from the Lord and there's a prosperity that comes from an utter disregard for the Lord. And that is what, like the days of Amos, is so rampant today. It didn't start 12 days before I was born, but the song was recorded then. When Frank Sinatra sang, I did what I had to do, I saw it through without exception. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And much, much more, I did it, I did it my way. For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, and he is not. Not to say the things he truly feels, not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and I did it my way. That is so emblematic of American culture, isn't it? That my way is not just my choice, but it, it, it really proves God's blessing. If there is a God, I must be right, have his approval. Because my success shows that he must approve of me. Sinatra didn't write that song a year after he died. His daughter, Tina, actually said something that I found encouraging. She says, my father didn't like the song. He always thought that the song, and I quote her, was self-serving and self-indulgent. He didn't like it, but the song stuck, and he couldn't get it off his shoe. The people that Amos was preaching to couldn't get it off their shoe either. It had become so ingrained, this self-indulgence, this self-serving, these habits of pushing down the poor in order to just make another buck. Until the Assyrian army was on the horizon, it was still on their shoe. It just stuck that closely. Amos preached against those people You see, there's a lot to learn from a basket of summer fruit about an end, about God's judgment. But the other image is the image of a sieve. We see that in Amos chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It says in verse 9, For behold, I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve. Not a pebble will reach the ground. Hold on to that little phrase. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword as those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. I've asked to have a picture just of a sieve, of at least a a stab at a representation of what likely Amos was referring to. The farmers back then would, would want to get their grain to a place where it was just the grain. You know, there's a place where you separate uh, the, the wheat kernels from the, from the husk the, the, around it. But there's also a place in the process in which just rocks that had gotten mixed in, twigs, maybe some dirt clods, they needed to separate the pure grain from these other pieces of trash. And so they would shake a sieve and presumably... The, the screen that they would make would be of such size that the grain would probably fall through and these other things would stay in the sieve and be thrown out. 
And so hence, when he says there that, that uh, not a pebble will reach the ground, he's indicating just the thoroughness with which God, as a farmer, separating, like a sieve, would separate those who are his own from those who he is casting aside, who are reaping his judgment. I will shake all the people, not a pebble will reach the ground. A sieve separates. You know what else separates? The gospel separates. The gospel separates, and Jesus said it. He talked about grain. He talked about a wheat field that had both the wheat and the weeds, the tares in it. And he says in in his very parable, they were growing together. And, And the servants of the farmer said, should we separate them now? And the farmer says, in words that are, are emblematic of what God is going to do on that final day and the time until then. Let both grow together until the harvest, in Matthew 13. Let both grow together until the harvest, when God perfectly and precisely separates. He doesn't separate the way that so much of the world is expecting him to separate. Because on one side will be those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross. Who have recognized they are sinners in need of a Savior. Who have bowed the knee to that Lord and said, Lord, I cast myself on you, on your work on the cross. You see, that's what he will separate from everyone else from everyone else who has not accepted the Lord of that cross. Back to Amos. They were separated because of unrepentant sin. They were separated and would be separated by the Lord also because of just a spiritual self-assuredness that I think is so very clear in this passage. Something that is so very clear is I survey this world we live in, the culture today. At the end of verse 9, end of verse 10, all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. What does that mean? I appreciate with someone writing an article in this passage, someone I don't know, but named Carrie Lee, I think said something very insightful. What characterizes these sinners that Amos was preaching to more than anything else is their self-assuredness. What is self-assuredness? A self-righteousness. I am right. I've got it together. Coupled with a, a confidence in one's own strength. One's own moral and spiritual strength. That is going on rampantly today as well. There's no doubt there have been millions of examples in the world, and many of them in our own country, just in the last week, of that self-assuredness, that spiritual self-assuredness that I'm okay. I'm okay with God. I, I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I don't need that God or his word, really. Just one I came across this past week, and I don't mean to pick on any one person, but I think I'm just quoting words she spoke, was Whoopi Goldberg this past week. 
I didn't watch the TV show, I never have, but the show that she was on was, she was in dialogue with someone whose values would probably be much more in line with, with ours here, speaking about issues of reproductive choice. And she said as she talked about that and her reasoning, her approach to this issue was very symptomatic of just her way of thinking, of of where her heart lies as it relates to God's principles and her own principles. She said this, and I'm quoting her exactly as best I can here, as you know, God doesn't make mistakes. How interesting it is when people throw in God and say things that have nothing to do with what he really intends. As you know, God doesn't make mistakes. God made us smart enough to know when it wasn't going to work for us. That's the beauty of giving us freedom of choice. And listen to this. I know that God made me smart enough to know that if there are alternatives out there that can work for me, I will investigate them. I don't want to read and say that I know the heart of Mrs. Goldberg, but but taking her words, I think, at face value, she is stating that I know what's best. That God's even let me make the decision about what is best. And he's okay with that. That kind of messaging is so symptomatic of today. It was symptomatic of what Amos was dealing with. Because those same people back then, God calls them out saying they weren't just sinners. We'd think it would end with that. He's judging them because they're sinners. But he points out this specific thing at the end of verse 9 and 10. That they are ones who say, disaster is not happening to me. Meaning, this judgment you're talking about, these these spiritual consequences you're talking about... (laughs) Not me. Either rejecting it completely or thinking I'm just okay. God's okay with my life. Who are those that say disaster will not overtake or meet me? It's people who say I will decide what's right for me. It's people who say my success proves I'm right. It's people who reject God's word as the supreme authority in their lives. Or, as we sometimes see in politics today, picking and choosing, always out of context, a scripture to validate things that go on to have nothing to do with what God intends, what God has actually said. It's people who reject that there's even right and wrong. Didn't you hear that in her comments? If there's alternatives available to me, I'm going to investigate them. Meaning... I'm not buying into some moral standard that a creator God has said. I'm smart enough to be able to investigate and make my own standard, is what she's saying in those words. It's people who reject that a judgment is coming. That that the words that God spoke to Moses all those years ago, words that he will by no means clear the guilty, don't apply to me because I'm not guilty or I'm good enough. Or I just don't believe that that's going to happen. It's people who reject the gospel. The farmer's sieve, it speaks to us of the self-assured, the unrepentant sinner who will not escape God's judgment. 
This book ends with a few verses that, quite honestly, the scholars say is quite an abrupt transition to the final few verses of God's restoring, in this case, the Israelites to the land. When, when the punishment, when judgment has run its course, God will once again prove that his covenant promises remain. That though they and the generations would, would live in exile, and many of them die in exile if they didn't die when the Assyrians attacked, the time would come when despite judgment, God shows himself still faithful to the promises. The promises to Abraham that through, through his seed, through his offspring, especially Christ, all nations would be blessed. We are still seeing that as the gospel goes forward. The promises to David that there will always be someone on the throne of your successors. And we know the Lord Jesus, one of his progeny some thousand years later, is on the throne today. So God's promises remain even though judgment was meted out. As you look back over this book, in conclusion, I have to ask the question, what, what have we learned there's a lot here. It's, it's, it's a challenging book, speaking to a culture 2,700 years removed from us. Very different set of circumstances in some ways, and yet so many parallels. And I guess I would say that I'm taking away that God's asking me to do right until he sets all things right. He's asking me to do right until he sets all things right. He's doing that because he's reminding me that his warnings are not endless. That his judgment will come according to his timing. Whether it's in more the, the everyday of life now, his judgment on the evil that is around us, or that final judgment. That his warnings are not endless and judgment will come. He's, he's helping me as I look back over this book to be reminded that spiritual self-assuredness is still rampant and it's just as deadly. So I shouldn't be surprised when I listen to something like what I read earlier by someone in, 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 who's prominent, a celebrity today. And you shouldn't be surprised whether it's at the coffee pot or with a neighbor or even talking with a second cousin who is distant from the Lord Jesus, has not bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus, and speaks like someone that was walking the streets of Assyria and Samaria, uh, walking the streets of Samaria all those years ago, who was confident in themselves, confident that things were going to work out in this life and the next, and basing none of that on what the Bible speaks, none of that on the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised by that today. And certainly we should continue to be prayerful and to trust God as to the timing of when he will judge. And finally, as I think of just how do we do right until God sets all things right, I'm reminded of this repeated refrain in this book of doing right by the poor and the needy. It was May 9th of 1912, 110 years ago, that the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, spoke actually for the last time in a public setting. He had become by that time known as 
General William Booth, taking it from the idea of the army, the Salvation Army that he had founded with his wife, Catherine, some 60 years before. Because of his concern for the poor, both their spiritual needs as well as their material needs, he had become known as a prophet of the poor. He said at this address these famous words, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. It was three months later that he died, and the word went around the world because his work and his concern for the poor had become that well-known. The general has laid down his sword. Well, with the warnings of Amos in our ears, until the day when we lay down our sword, I trust that we will do right until God sets all things right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the teachings from Amos. I pray, Lord, that we would hold on to these teachings. We would be concerned for this lost world. Lord, we would trust the timing of your judgments in small and great things. Lord, we would be concerned about the things that you're concerned about until that time when for each one of us, we lay down our sword and we're called home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.